If you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn to John's Gospel. I understand eight different people have already taken you through this chapter, and we're coming to the end of it. John 6 and verse 60, if you have your Bible with you. John 6, verse 60. This is God's word. When many of his disciples heard it, that's heard what Jesus had to say, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is God's word and it's serious stuff. I want to give you a, a quick sweep of the whole chapter, not because the men before me didn't cover it properly, but you won't understand what I'm going to say unless you remember what Jesus said in these earlier verses here. Two amazing things happened in chapter 6, verse 1 through to 21. The first thing happened during the day when they were on dry land. Remember, Jesus fed the multitudes with two small fish and five loaves of bread. The little boy who gave all he had to Jesus, I don't think he would ever have forgotten that day. And he must have shared what happened with his pals on a number of occasions. The lesson I think to learn from that is when we do what we can do by the grace of God, then we can look to Jesus to do what only he can do as the Son of God. If we learn nothing else from that, we can learn that. The second thing happened during the night when they were at sea. A small group of disciples get into the boat without Jesus joining them. And after traveling three and a half miles or so, several hours later, they're still struggling to make headway as they kept rowing across the Sea of Galilee in rough water, suddenly what was a problem to them became a pavement for Jesus as he approached them walking on the water. You know the story well. No wonder they were terrified. 
But our Lord's words meant everything to them. And they can mean everything to us as well when we're in situations that are dark, difficult, dangerous. He simply said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. In no time at all, they're safely back in dry land, having arrived at their desired destination. Pick up the story at verse 22 in the chapter. The crowd have hurriedly made their way round the lake in search of Jesus. When they eventually found him, they asked the question, Rabbi, when did you get here? I think if I had been there, I would have asked another question. Rabbi, how did you get here? And I say that because after the feeding of the multitude, they knew Jesus hadn't left with the disciples in the boat. How did he get there? We don't know. Jesus makes a few comments, launches into this great discourse on the bread of life that takes us through to the end of the chapter. But there are several sermons in the process. First of all, he talks to them about food for the soul. You remember? Takes the people as he finds them, but doesn't leave them as he finds them. That's the genius of Jesus. Tells them that they're searching for him because he's just fed them with food for the body. And he then uses that statement as a springboard to tell them, listen guys, there are two different kinds of food, you know. Don't work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He tells them the bread that nourishes our bodies is destined to perish with us, But there's another bread that nourishes our souls and that food is destined to last forever. He tells them then in verse 35 that not only can he supply that food, he is that food. I am the bread of life, he says. Ego I me in the original. I and I alone. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Tells him in verse 33, in contrast to the manna that God gave their forefathers, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. These are amazing words. He tells them he's not only the giver, he's the gift. He's not only the source, he's the substance. Food for the soul. But he also goes on to talk in these verses about faith in him as the Son of Man. Now keep in mind, this is our Lord's favorite title for himself. Takes it from the book of Daniel, the reading just earlier on, as he appears before the Ancient of Days. It's not so much a reference with regards to his humanity, as you might think. It's a reference to his deity. It's a reference to him, Jesus, as the God-man. Strange as it may seem, whenever you begin to mention the spiritual blessings of the gospel, people want to do something to earn these things rather than believe in someone and receive them as a gift. That's human nature. They asked him again in verse 28, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus immediately replies, the work of God is this. What God requires is this, to believe in the one he has sent. He's telling them to come to him, just like with the bairns here this morning. 
to come to him, to look to him, to believe in him for salvation, because it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He says in verse 40, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In other words, we're to turn away from everything and look in faith to Jesus alone. Have you done that? It was this truth that brought Spurgeon, wasn't it, as a 16-year-old, to experience God's salvation. Someone preaching in that Methodist chapel in Colchester on that text from Isaiah, Look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and you will be saved. And the preacher said, All you have to do is look. Spurgeon said, I looked, and I could have looked my eyes away. To believe in Christ means to look to Christ. Only he can save us from our sins. Only he can satisfy the deepest needs of the human heart. Food for the soul, yes, talks about that. Faith in him, yes, he talks about that. And then he goes on to mention some theological facts with regards to salvation. There were many people who saw him perform many powerful miracles, heard him preach many wonderful sermons, and still they wouldn't come to him. Amazing. They wouldn't look to him. They wouldn't believe in him. They wouldn't trust in him. But listen to what Jesus tells us. Here's a theological truth to take home with you today. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me, they will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. What's he saying? He's saying people not coming to him, people not looking to him, people not believing in him, people not trusting in him, will not for one second frustrate the plans and purposes of God. Those the Father gives me, they'll come and I'll never turn them away. And I shall lose none of all that he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. And he re repeats the same truth in verse 40. No wonder they were grumbling among themselves. Is this not Jesus? The son of Joseph? Wh whose father and mother we know? How can he talk like this? These are astonishing truths he's talking about. Who does he think he is? Does he think he's the Messiah? Does he think he's God? And then there's at least one other sermon, verses 43 through to 59, on the subject of eating and drinking. Let me try it to be as brief as I can. Jesus begins by saying something about the sovereignty of God and then something about human responsibility. He's already touched on this theme in verse 37, but he takes it a stage further in verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. How all this works out in real life is one of the secret things that belong to the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 29, 29, one of the first verses I memorized after I was converted as a teenager. But it's solid biblical truth. Verse 48, he repeats what he said earlier about his true identity. I am the bread of life. 
Then he opens this up for further consideration as he tells them in verse 49 through 51, Your fathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And when he said that, to say that it threw the Jews into confusion is an understatement. And they began to argue among themselves as to what he meant by what he said. And let's face it, if you've read a wee bit of church history, people have been arguing about these words ever since. Then he said in verse 52, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said in reply, let me read it to you. Verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Did you hear what I was saying there, what Jesus said? These words have got to be understood metaphorically, or we will be embracing cannibalism. They must be understood spiritually, not literally, or you'll end up not really understanding what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying for one second. That spiritual blessings come through something you take through your mouth. Flesh, blood, eat it, drink it. He's not talking that way. He's saying salvation, spiritual blessing, is something that's in the heart. Jesus becomes our meat and our drink in that sense. He's our raison d'etre. He's our reason for living. He is our life. That's why Paul could say in Philippians 1, to me, to live is Christ. Because of what he's done for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. He's our meat and drink every day. He alone can satisfy. He alone can save. And it only makes sense if we try to understand everything Jesus said here in a spiritual way. Now you're saying, John, you get chapter 6, verses 63 to 71 and preaching. Yes, I did. In the light of all that he's just said. We now come to the parting of the ways. We now come to, it's time to choose. So what happened, having said all this? Would you not love to have been there and heard him? What happened? Number one, there was a great desertion. Those who were there found it hard to listen to what he had to say. Oh, yes. They found it even harder to accept what he had to say. It's as if Jesus was deliberately talking people out of falsely following him by shocking them. 
shocking them. You better think this through. You better sit down and count the cost. He did this sort of thing, didn't he, on a number of occasions. Remember in Luke 14 when he told the crowds following him, if they didn't hate their father and mother, they couldn't be one of his disciples. It's a Hebrew idiom. If you don't put me before your parents, you can't be my disciple. He went on to say, and if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you could be many things, but you can't be one of my disciples. And if you don't forsake all you have, you can't be my disciple. These are deliberately shocking, outrageous statements to make people think. Now he shocks them by saying, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so we read on in verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? Now, the question arises, who were these people who are referred to here as his disciples? They certainly weren't the religious leaders of the day. They weren't just the crowds who turned out to see him, you know, as he passed through Cana and Galilee, as he passed through Nazareth, as he passed through Capernaum. They came out and they saw him and heard him. It wasn't that kind of person he's talking about. No, no. Who were they? Because it says, from that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Who were these people? Were they saved people? It's not a reference to the twelve. He asked them separately in verse 67, you don't want to leave me too, do you? So who is he talking about? Who are these, quote, end quote, disciples who turned back and no longer followed him? Surely there must have been those who were simply following him from place to place. Surely they're the people who were traveling with him to hear him preach. They recognize that this man has an authority nobody else has. He never man speak like this man. They're the people who admired him, wanted to make him their king in order to rid the land of the Romans. They're the people who saw him do those impossible things, those miracles that no one else can do. They were his disciples in the sense that they followed him from place to place. Note what it says about some of these followers. There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them didn't believe. These were the people who were offended at what he had just said. Found it unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Found it unbelievable. These are people who have tasted the heavenly gift. If you think of those verses in Hebrews. These are people who have experienced, seen, witnessed, felt something of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in front of their eyes. Although not in terms of being born again. These are people 
people who tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, but now they're falling away. Now they're deserting Him. They're turning their backs on Him. They're going back to the empty things they had left earlier. They're going back to the old ways, the broken cisterns, leaving the fountain of living water. They're shunning the one who is the bread of life in preference for the junk food they can get from the world. That's what they're doing. To put it crudely, they're going back to their former way of religion, going back to believing a God of their own making and their own imagining. It happens all the time. I could write a book on it. People who come to church for a while, attend all sorts of meetings, hear the Word of God faithfully preached, appear interested, make encouraging comments, even make superficial changes in their behavior, stop some of their bad habits, start to read the Bible from time to time, even pray, love to be in the company of Christians, make a decision, make a profession of faith. But they're not prepared to face up to the cost of really following Jesus as a true disciple. People who've got light in their minds, but no life yet in their souls. They've never been converted. They've never been born again. Look at me now. Anybody here in that category? Remember Jesus in John 3 to one of the most religious men on the planet at the time and one of the best Bible teachers of the day, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Oh, it's a mystery. The wind blows where it wants to blow. It comes from here, goes there, etc., etc. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. God does it in different ways. But it's a miracle that happens because when you're born again, you're born from above. It's not what you've done. It's what God's done in here. The writer to the Hebrews refers to people like this as those who shrink back and are destroyed. These are the people whose hearts are not good soil for the sowing of the good seed of the word of God. They hear the word of God, but their hearts are like those other soils in the parable of the sower, remember, that are not good. The one with no response, the seed landing on the pathway, hard as concrete, doesn't make any difference. They go back home the same way they came in when they come to a service. What about the seed, you know, in the shallow soil? Well, it can't go down very far. Sun comes, they're finished. What about those amongst the weeds? Oh, they grow along with the weeds, but then they're choked and you never see them again. After Jesus introduced himself as the bread of life who gave us his flesh to eat and his blood to drink, there was a great desertion by those called disciples so near and yet so far away why because what he really said to them was not acceptable it was not believable it was unthinkable the cost was too high to pay and so from that time, many turned back and never followed him. 
I find that scary. But it happened. A great desertion. But the second thing here, much more encouraging, there's a good confession in these verses we've just read. Our Lord may have been saddened by what he saw taking place in front of his eyes, but he was not surprised. Nothing surprises Jesus. He knows the end from the beginning. All that seems to blossom is not always fruitful. They are not all Israel who call themselves Israel. They are not all Christians who call themselves Christians. There are many names written down in the membership lists of churches on earth that are not written down in the Lamb's book of life in heaven. Jesus wasn't perplexed by the fact that many of his followers forsook him. On the contrary, he remains convinced that through it all, God's will is being done and God's purpose is being fulfilled. And we know that's true from what's recorded in verse 64. Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe. Having said that, he uses the incident to test the twelve. Verse 67, as to where they're standing at this decisive moment in history. It's crunch time for them. So he turns to them and he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? Authorized version puts it almost hauntingly. Will you also go away? Surely you don't want to go away too, do you? You can almost feel the pathos coming out. Do you? I have seen within the last two years what we thought were mighty men of God falling and forsaking. What are the twelve going to do as he turns to them? What would you have done if you had been there? What will you do now? This is decision time after all we've heard in John 6. It always is after you hear the word of God. Well, Peter speaks out on their behalf with this good confession of faith. Lord, he says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. There's a couple of things here I want to mention in analyzing that answer. We're living in a day of small things in Scotland. So many people want the feel-good factor rather than going for the live-good factor. God's truth is being trampled upon across these highly favored islands of ours. I wonder, have you begun to see the reality of God's truth in a world of fading dreams? As you've been tested in your faith, have you come like these Disciples that said, Lord, to whom can we go? There's nobody else we can go to. Are you there? Do you realize there's nothing out there can meet your need? Do you really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not enough to be a Baptist. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you willing to follow him and serve him in the midst of a spiritual wasteland? A couple of things. The real Jesus is unique. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter knows there are no other alternatives. There are no other options. There's no one else in the entire universe able to meet our need except the one who is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bankrupt Protestantism 
has lost its message. Instead of sola scriptura, which came from the Reformation, it's now becoming sola cultura. What's the culture saying? Well, what's the Bible saying? And what about sacramental Romanism? It can help nobody, it never has done, and it never will do. Atheistic communism? Intellectual humanism? Western consumerism? Eastern Hinduism? Islamic fundamentalism? Contemplative Buddhism simply cannot meet the needs of a human being. And neither can the cults. Lord, to whom shall we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. Are we there? Truth is not found in a string of perils. It's only found in this one peril of great price. The words of Jesus are not dead utterances. They're not noisy sounds. They're not fading blobs of ink on a page. They are the words of eternal life. I am the bread of life, he said. He's making a reference to himself alone as the one who is able to save, satisfy our deepest longings. Yes, let's say it in an age like this. There is an exclusivism in Christ. I am the way, he said, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. It's a reference to his death on the cross. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in you. It's a reference to a biblical conversion. He's referring to someone coming into a personal living relationship with Jesus through what he accomplished on that cross. He's referring to someone coming just as they are, to him just as he is, on his terms. The real Jesus is unique. Real faith is unshakable. Lord, to whom shall we go? Your words are the words of eternal life. There might be many followers who are now deserters. But true faith, saving faith, God-given faith, will not be swayed by crowds coming or crowds going. True faith will not be swayed by feelings coming or feelings going. True faith will not be swayed by pastors coming or pastors going. True faith will not be swayed by trends coming or trends going. True faith will not be swayed by trials coming or trials going. True faith will not be swayed by experiences coming and experiences going. The true Christian believes and continues to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. No matter what goes on around him or what is said against him, he knows that Jesus is the Son of the living God. He knows that Jesus is the Holy One of God. He's utterly persuaded that nothing can separate him from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Can we all this morning in this building join with Peter and confess with the rest of them, Lord, you've brought me to a stage in my life where I know beyond a shadow of doubt to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. He's speaking with assurance here, not arrogance. Assurance. 
He can talk like this. Because of what Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Have I not chosen you? So you look at the passage, you see a great desertion now taking place. But you hear this good confession. But there's just one final thought. There's a grim exception here. Originally the twelve, none of these disciples, apostles, apart from Judas, knew that one of them was a traitor. Peter made his confession on behalf of the twelve, we are told. Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who through one of the twelve was later to betray him. Neither Peter nor the others knew there was someone amongst them, among the twelve, who was an exception to the rule. There's a mystery in all of this, I know. No one among the twelve knew Judas was a fake. Except Judas. When Jesus told them in the upper room that one of them was going to be a traitor, no one pointed the finger at Judas. They all cried out, Lord, is it me? But how can Jesus choose twelve and one of them turn out to be a traitor? What privileges and opportunities he had He saw all the miracles. He is a commissioned preacher, missionary. He heard all Christ's sermons. He is the trusted treasurer. He partook of the bread and wine at the Last Supper, the Passover meal. How are we to understand this? Well, the one thing you mustn't do is build a doctrine of saved and lost on it. To do so will undermine the truth of eternal security, the eternal security of the believer, which is underlined page after page after page in the New Testament. Once a child of God, you can never cease to be a child of God. Oh yes, you can break fellowship with God because you sin and you fall and you're broken just like me, but you can't sever that relationship. Once anyone has been born again, they will never need to be born again again. But heed the warning. Heed the warning. Judas was chosen to be an apostle. He was never chosen to be a child of God. He was never adopted into God's family. He's hiding among the foundation members of the early church. But he's not one of them. He didn't know God as his father. He didn't know Jesus as his savior. He was of his father, the devil. This is telling me That position, position, knowledge, privilege, experience, profession, words, deeds, and even sacrificial service cannot save one soul. Only Jesus can do that. We need to look to him and keep looking. We need to come to him and keep coming. We need to trust him and keep trusting. If you've never done it before, it's time you nailed your colors to the mast. Or one day you'll be found out. 
I spoke at an induction service last night in Edinburgh. Robert Murdoch, I think he's preached here before. I remember I preached at his farewell service in Lisbon in Northern Ireland about 20 years ago when he was going to Canada. And it was the first time, the very first time, I heard this, this song sung. And I've been singing it, I don't know how many times over the 20 years that I've gone. When it's all been said and done, there's just one thing that matters. Did I do my best to live for truth? Did I live my life for you? When it's all been said and done, all my treasures will mean nothing. Only what I've done for love's reward will stand the test of time. Lord, your mercy is so great that you look beyond our weakness and find purest gold and miry clay making sinners into saints. When it's all been said and done, there's just one thing that matters. Did I do my best to live for truth? Did I live my life for you? Lord, I'll live my life for you. Will you?